Well, over the last few days, no doubt you've turned on the TV or opened the iPad or turned on some sort of device that's shown you um, new scenes from across the world of all sorts of atrocities. What we see in Paris, the kind of evil that has gone on there, 127 plus dead, um, over 300 injured, or at the same time, two suicide bombers in Beirut, uh, 43 dead, over 200 injured there as well. There just seems to be so much unrest in the world around us, so much going on that as you stand back, you kind of go, that's so wrong. Do you find yourself frustrated at the wrong in the world, angry, annoyed that people would do things that are so seemingly and obviously wrong and evil? It is a terrible evil when people do what they think is right without any regard to what is actually right. When they set the rules and go, this is what I want to do, and I don't care what's right or wrong, what's good or bad. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That's the cause of the unrest we experience, the, the evil that is in the world. People who take moral order into their own hands. And as the scenes flash across the TV screen and we hear what has gone on, it makes me ask, how could someone do what is so obviously wrong and think that it's right? What's happened to their moral compass? How can they act in this way? But then as as I thought about it, as I reflected on what's going on and what people are doing, I realized something that it's going to sound a little bit harsh. It's a little bit out there, but I want to put it to you tonight. You and I aren't that much different from the people who take moral order into their own hands and do such atrocities as we've seen on the, on the television. You and I are not that much different. We make the same error all the time. It's just that the scale of things, the scale of the error, the scale of, of the consequences of what we're doing is just a little bit different. But you think about it. The things that you do in your life, the things that I do in my life, are the things that are good for me. The things that I want to do, the things I want to commit to. Things that I think are right, rather than the things that are actually good. Do you find yourself doing that? Or is it just me? (laughs) Do you find yourself going, I keep doing things in my life that are good for me, but I don't really have any concern over what is really right and good. Let me illustrate it a little bit. Um, the other night, I, I went into the kitchen, uh, and I was kind of a bit hungry. And so I opened up the freezer, and I took out the ice cream. And this is where you get the dilemma. I opened up the lid of the ice cream, and there was enough ice cream in the punnet for me to have a large helping, or for me to divide it up and leave some for others in our house. What do you do? I'll tell you what I did. I ate the ice cream. I like ice cream. And the ice cream was there. I didn't have any moral obligation, or did I think that I should care about others in the house because I did what was good for me. I ordered the world about what was good for me to do. And so I ate all the ice cream. Now, for the others in the house, they didn't get to eat ice cream. But that's life, right? Life living with me. Or how about this one? You find yourself angry at what someone's done. The way they've spoken about you or something they've said in public or to someone that you care about. And so you find yourself at your computer writing that email. You know the ones. 
that sit in your draft folder for a while and you're like, you, you kind of think about how you can say things to them in a way that just damage, but they don't, they're kind of too out there, but they just make the person feel bad. And so you write them and you're like, you know what, I'm going to send it. And so you hit the send button and all at once you kind of feel happy and then a little bit guilty. You feel happy because, well, you've been able to say what you wanted to say. You've been able to do what you think is right and tell them what you think of them and kind of do them a favor, right? Bring them down to the level they deserve to be at. Help them get a little bit of reality adjustment about how they've acted in life. But deep down, you know you're doing that so that you feel better about yourself because they've hurt you. And you actually want to even the score. You want to get back at them. And so you do what's good for you rather than what might be necessarily good or right. It's the same thing when we, when we look at taxes. How many people in, in our country say, you know what? The IRD have got enough money. They don't need mine. They don't need to know about that money that I should report, but I'm not going to. And so we don't report it. We don't write it down because we want to keep it because, you know, I'm a student or like I've worked hard for this. Why should they get it? They've got enough money. And so we make decisions about life that prioritize my good rather than what is right. Do you see how you do it? Do you see how at your heart and mind we do the same things that these people are doing? Yes, the consequences are different. But at our heart, we are setting what is right and what is wrong rather than doing what is actually right. But the question for us tonight to think through is, how do we work out what the right thing to do is? How do I know what is right to do and what isn't? How do we define what is good and right and moral and what is wrong and evil and terrible? On what basis can we universally say what happened on Friday night was wrong? How is it that we can do that? Well, in God's overarching plan, it just so happens that the passage that we'd planned to look at in this series that we're just coming up next raises that very question. How do we work out our morals? How do we work out what to do in life? And as a side note, I just want to say, God's Word is amazing. You know, some people are like, oh, it's such an old book, it's got nothing to say to us today. You know, I want to hear topical talks on 10 points on being a better student. Or I want to know how to live life to the full. I don't want to hear what some guy wrote 3,000 years ago. But it's amazing that as we open up this part of the Bible, as we've just been going through, God so speaks to us in a way that we need to listen. God's Word is living and active. If you want God to speak, if you're like, I just wish God would step into the world and talk to me, then keep your Bible open. Actually, listen to Him. He's there speaking to you. He has spoken this Word and has phenomenal implications for us today. His word is living and active, the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than a two-edged sword, pointing out where we need to change. If we're not regularly in God's word, then we're missing out on God's wisdom for the world. And more than that, we're missing out on hearing God speak. God, speak. That's why we as a church gather around the word. You don't want to hear what's going through my head. I want to hear what God has to say. And in this part of the Bible, in Ecclesiastes 8, we hear what God has to say in in an interesting way. It comes 
from this teacher, this writer who's kind of writing wisdom literature. It's a little bit different than just other parts of the Bible where we get kind of narrative of what's going on here. Uh, This teacher is writing to give his view of the world and to point out truths of the world in a way that's going to make you and me think in a God-inspired way that we need to look for the answers, not just in this passage here, but in the way that the New Testament authors look back and understand it. And that's what we'll do tonight as we open this. We'll, We'll have a look at what he has to say. But here we see the teacher's wisdom from the world around us. Remember that the teacher in this part of Ecclesiastes has been going through showing us if we were to limit our horizons, if we were to say all that we have is what is here and now, then what can we make of the world? What do we make of what we see? How do we live life to the full? They've been the questions that he's been asking. And this week we get to a, a really a, a comment that might surprise you. See, the issue at hand is how do we work out what is right and what isn't? He starts in 8, chapter 2, saying, this is how you should live. You ready? Keep the king's command. You, you want to know how to live? You want to know the, the, the right way to act in the world, the best way to act in the world? If, if we limit our view to just what's here and now, if we take God out of the equation, the best way to live is to do what the king says. Literally, it's to attend to the mouth of the king. What the king says goes. There's no idea here of, of being good or bad. It's not like, okay, work out what the king says is good or what the king says is bad or what is right or what isn't right or what is the best for the greatest number or whatever kind of form you want to have of the way you think through morals. He just says, just agree with the king. Whatever he says, go, go do it. Obey him. Don't question him. Go do what the king says. Now, part of me is like, Why? Maybe it's the, I don't know, the prisoner rebel Australian in me, the kind of person who got kicked off to an island. All Australians are criminals, right? That we're like, I don't want to do, as soon as someone says, like as soon as I see a wet paint sign, I don't know if you have this, as soon as I see a sign that says wet paint, I always want to touch it. I'm like, if it says do not touch, I'm like, I want to touch. It's kind of how stuff works. We're, we're naturally rebellious. I've used this before. Um, You've got to be honest with this next question I'm going to ask you, okay? How many of you right now want to look what's on the back wall? Okay, ready? No one look at the back wall. How many want to look at the back wall right now, honestly? Look at that. Why? See, the law makes us do it. We're we're naturally rebellious and we go here. Why is this wise man, one of the wisest men we've ever seen, saying to obey the king no matter what? Look at verse 4. For the king's word is authoritative. And who can say to him, what are you doing? In other words, he's saying, don't tempt him. The king is the boss. He's the one with the power. You can't go up to the king and say, you suck, I'm great. You'll end up dead and he'll be like, I'm the king because he is the king. Like, there's no way you can approach a king or a queen and just be really casual with them. There's a way we need to approach them rightly because they have power at their disposal. Armies, bodyguards, guns, bazookas, nuclear warheads. Right? Verse 5, the teacher says this, The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful and a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. The reasoning here is pretty simple. How do you live in the world? Like this. Do what the king says so you don't die. That's the best way to live in the world. See, Solomon's been going through from Solomon's perspective and saying that the thing that robs us of meaning in life is death. 
Death takes away all the meaning that there is. If you think you're going to enjoy life and have happiness, you're going to have it for a bit, but it's fleeting because you die and it doesn't last. And you can get all these possessions and you haul them up for yourself and be like, look at what I've got. But you die and leave it to some schmuck who comes behind you, whether you're your son or someone else, and they're going to waste it and they're going to get to enjoy it. They didn't even work for it. What's the point of it? What's the point of, of wisdom and, and, and academic achievement? Because all the things that you do, they're just going to be attributed to someone else later on and you're not going to be around to enjoy it forever because you're going to die. Death sucks. So how do we live in a world? How do we make right choices? You make choices that allow you to live for the longest. That's what he's saying. Think about what you do. You don't go up to the king and go, look, I think, let me just give you a few pointers on how you should you know, order your country. Yeah, he's saying you'll die. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be it. He says, there is a time to bring things up, but do it at the right time in the right way so you don't die. Now, the problem with this whole worldview, whole way of thinking about just do what the, the one in power says, is that it doesn't always work. <laughs> and he himself acknowledges that. Now, have a look at verse 14 of chapter 8. There's a futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say this too is futile. In other words, you can do the right thing, you can say the right stuff, you can be nice to the king in the appropriate time, in the appropriate way, and when he says you die, you die anyway. Death comes, it doesn't always work out that the people who do good get good. The overarching message from Ecclesiastes here in this section is this. Listen to the one with the most power. Obey the king. Preserve your life, but understand it doesn't always work out well. That's life under the sun. You've got no other option. That, that's, that's how to live. Bad things seem to happen to good people. Good things seem to happen to bad people. That's the wisdom we get from looking at the world around us. But... If you look carefully in this section of Ecclesiastes, we, we notice that there's, there's more going on than just under the sun. The teacher here, he, he's trying to work out what to do without God in the equation. He's saying, look, if we're just looking around at the wisdom that there is, that's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is doing, remember? That's like running around a maze, trying to find all the different avenues and, and, and get the most out of the maze um, without having an overarching view, a view from outside. But as we get to this point here, we're going to see in a second that the writer of Ecclesiastes can't but help but say, there's another point of view. (laughs) Yes, if you live this, this is the way to live, but there's something else out there, something that I've noticed, that another view that will help you to work out how to live in the world. And what I want to do right now, the reason I'm writing in this way, in this, this kind of Odd way of saying, look, life sucks, just do whatever they say, live as long as you can, and sometimes that doesn't work out either, so hey, happy life. The reason I'm doing it like that is to point you to say there's got to be something more. To give you that thirst and that desire to say, if there is no God, this is pretty much the best we've got. You see, if we're just unintended accidents, if humanity just exist because we exist through a series of unintended consequences, chain reactions. What he's saying is if that's all that life is, if that's all that you are, then ride the wave of life. Enjoy it while you can because it's going to crash and peter out and end up in nothing on the sandy beach. 
When it comes to making decisions on how you should act in life, self-preservation makes the most sense. But I want to ask this question. If self-preservation is our moral compass, if that's how we work out what is good and what is right, then in what way can we say almost universally, almost universally that a gunman let loose at a concert is wrong? How, how can we say that? Well, well, it didn't help my self-preservation. Well, it's bad for me. But for him, well, why is it wrong for him? And we might say, because well, one of them got shot dead, the rest of them self-detonated. So that didn't end up well. So maybe it was bad for those reasons. But if it's good for them, then, then how can I say it's wrong? If, if they think it's going to preserve their life. What makes it okay for him to shoot others? Or let me ask this question. What makes it okay for the police to shoot him to stop? If he's killing others, why can the police kill him? How do we think about how we act? About what is right and wrong? See, self-preservation, just doing what the king says, what the most powerful one says, doesn't give us a kind of compass to work out life that we're satisfied with. It's just wholly unsatisfactory. What I want to put to you today is this. Morality without God is impossible. Morality without God in the picture is impossible. Now, let me be clear for a second. I'm not saying because you're an atheist, you're immoral. Right? That, 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 we, that atheists or agnostics or whatever, different religions, um, someone who doesn't hold a God, I'm not saying just because you don't hold a God, you're, you're naturally immoral. I'm saying you've got no basis for moral obligations, for objectively saying, this is true for you, for objectively saying to anyone, you should not do that. You should not do this. Let me quote to you from C.S. Lewis. I think he describes it really well. It's on the screen. He says, If no set of moral ideas were better than another, there will be no sense in preferring civilized morality to Nazi morality. The moment you say one lot of morals is better than another, you are in fact measuring them by an ultimate standard. Do you see that? If one person's set of ideas of self-preservation or whatever things they use is different from another person's way of, of working out how they make moral choices in life, then you can't say one's better than the other. There's no, there's no sense of absolute. Or if you do say one is better than the other, which we want to say, we want to say that civilized morality is better than Nazi morality, then we're in fact measuring morality by some sort of ultimate standard. What is that standard? Why do you stand back and go, what happened in Paris and in Beirut and what happens all over the globe in all sorts of different ways? Why do you stand back and say, that's wrong? Where does that come from? How can you say objectively that that is wrong? The moment you admit that there must be some ultimate standard of right and wrong, you're actually arguing for the existence of God. Existence of someone whom we are responsible to, someone or something who would create an ultimate standard outside of my standard and your standard, even outside of a collective standard. John Piper summarizes this really well. He says this, 
A world which tries to remove God from his all-creating, all-sustaining, all-defining and all-governing place has no choice but to make itself God and create, create its own morality. In other words, when humanity abandons God and what God has revealed to us, his self-revelation as, as the source of what is right and what is objectively true and good, then the next highest thing we appeal to, if we throw God out of the, out of the equation, if we kick him out, is us, humanity. We decide what's good and what isn't. We set the moral standards. See, if God's not the measure of what is true and right and good, then we are. I am. And you are. We start making the rules of life. What we're doing is we make ourselves little gods, little objective morality setters for our little universe. And when we bump into others, we have a problem because they're a God as well. And they think their moral actions are are kind of good for them. And we've got a clash now. There's a God called me and a God called you in a fight. Who's going to win? Who comes out on top? Whose moral standards are right when you can't agree on what the outcome will be? Who wins? Power always wins. Might becomes right. Whoever's the strongest says, guess what? <laughs> you lose. Now, the one who has the power, the king, the one in authority says, do you know what? You're going to do what I say or I'll smash you. And they win. That's, that's the way the world works. See, we find ourselves in that exact, exact situation now in a world where everything in, in education, in, in media, in politics becomes a battle for power. A battle for airtime, a battle to say, this is what is right. The media say all sorts of things about euthanasia. We want, we want to get people to have freedom, to be able to choose when they die. And so whoever has the most airtime, who has the most power, ends up winning because they have the most influence. Whoever has the most power will win. There's not a quest for objective truth, for what is right, for what is good, since... There isn't anything right and good except what I think is right and good. The world just becomes one great big power struggle when you take God out of the equation. Because the one who has the power in a world without God defines reality, defines how we should live. Now, I take it that's what ISIS is trying to do. They're trying to arm wrestle the rest of the world out and say, this is what we want to happen. We'll show you. We have the power. We want to control what is right and what is good. And we want to live our way. And it's a battle. How does Obama respond? We will respond. We will meet them. Power. <laughs> the world says, we will stand up to this. We will not let this go on. We, we want to stop it. And rightly so. But I'm telling you, our morals just become, well, the one with the most power wins. Now, on a smaller scale... Isn't that what you and I do in our lives? We try to define what is right. We try and go, I I think this is the best way to live. I don't think God would want me, even though God says to do this, I don't really want to do it. And so I want to live the right way. Or you know what, even though the government says this, I think I want to define the way I think about the world. We become moral relativists 
And everything is just tied to us. And that is a messy world. And as we watch the atrocities of power being played out on our television screens, that deep desire you have for objective morality, that deep desire for, oh, this is so wrong. I wish this would stop. Whether you're a Christian or not, why is it there? Why do you have that desire for this wrong to stop? I want to tell you that objective morality is impossible unless there is a God. Unless there is someone who sets out for us what right and wrong is. Without God, there is no basis for moral obligation. See, if we just exist, if we are just random molecules, unintended, then really we can do whatever we want to one another, can't we? There's no wrong just because i am doesn't mean you can't you can't do this or that if i walk up to a a log on the ground in a park it just is it's just there you know i can't go up to the log and go man you're too brown stop it like it's a log it just is you shouldn't be that brown like who does that someone who's gone loopy um but in some sense if i'm just a random collection of molecules and so are you then why can't I just walk up to you and say, I want to punch you in the head? That's fine. You, you know, that's not wrong. You're just a random, you're just an accident. You're just like, a, I can punch a log. No one complains if I punch a log. What's the difference? No, if we work out that we have purpose, like, for instance, you walk up to a park and you see a bench, a seat. It says, donated in loving memory of Aunt Betsy where Aunt Betsy is, and you see, you're sitting there in the park and you go, you know what? I just, I'm just not in a happy mood today and I don't like Aunt Betsy and I don't like that seat. So you pull out your pocket chainsaw, because everyone carries a pocket chainsaw, and you just cut it down. Now that's wrong. Why is it wrong? What if you, what if you just cut down a, a fallen tree? That's not wrong. It's just a fallen tree. It's just, it's just dead. But this, this, this seat, it's got purpose. It was made for a reason. It was put there by someone. You haven't wronged necessarily the seat, but you've Wrong the one who put it there, the one who made it. Now, they might not have had a right to have made it. It might have been your park. There's a whole heap of questions there, but the fact that it has purpose means that there's some sort of relationship going on, some sort of, because um, it has been designed, some sort of relationship between me and it. If you and I have been created by God, if we, then, then we have a purpose. We don't just exist for the sake of existing. We're not just random molecules. We, we actually have been created for a purpose, then suddenly there is someone else we are responsible to. There is some reason in which we can say, if I've been made in the image of God, if God made me, then no one else has the right to take away my life. For he made me. And I therefore, there are these moral consequences because God is over all. So where do we turn? How do we make sense of the world? How do we make moral judgments? Well, I think we need to go to the most logical solution. We are not unintended accidents. The very fact that you go, oh, it's wrong when I'm wronged. It's wrong when I view these events on the TV screen. Right? Why do you say they're wrong? 
Because there's value in a person. Because we have been made. Because we're not unintended random accidents. It does matter, doesn't it? People do matter. The way we act does matter. Why? Because we're not free agents like we think we are. We're not free to do whatever we want any old time. That's not what love means. Love means doesn't mean we're just free to do what I want. We were made to live for God. We were made to live in a way that God made us to live, to treat Him as our God. We are alive only because He sustains our breath and makes our heart beat. We are responsible to Him. We owe Him our life. We were made by Him. And so we have value. And out of his character comes really what morality is, what good is. The one who made us defines what good is. We can only have objective right and wrong if there is one who made us for a purpose. We can only know what that right and wrong is if the one who made us reveals himself to us, if he tells us how to live. And now in chapter 8 of Ecclesiastes, the teacher has a hunch He has a hunch that this view of just do what the king says won't satisfy. But there is more to life than what we just see and experience here and now. He has a hunch that living under the sun in the way that we'll see life go the longest is drastically unfulfilling and will fall short in the end. Look at verse 12. Although a sinner commits a crime a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. However, it will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they are not reverent before God. It's like he's trying to limit himself to this world and all there is, but no, he says there's more than this. We were created. There is a God outside the universe. There's a God above the maze. And you will need to face this God. We will all need to come before him. It will go well with God-fearing people, those who relate rightly to the one who made them. There's something about it. It's not clear from here. We can't go, oh yeah, I understand totally what you're saying. But he's he's kind of prompting you. He's pushing you. He wants to say there is more than this worldview, that this is all there is. There's a hunch. A hunch that we know from the rest of the Bible and the rest of history that there is more to this life. There is a judge who will hold everyone to account. There will be a day when we come before uh, an objective moral absolute. His name is God. And how we have acted toward one another and in his world and toward him will matter. We will be called to account for how we've lived. And so fearing God, having a right relationship with him makes a difference. See, We so often find ourselves as humans with this unfounded notion that we live in a world where we understand all things. We convince ourselves that we can get it, we can solve it, and we can know what life's about, but we fool ourselves. Because our view is far too narrow and our wisdom is far too earthly. We inevitably frame the world around us and write God out of the frame, out of the equation, and we think this is all there is, and so we make choices. But God offers us a remarkable privilege, a privilege of seeing the world from outside the world, from His point of view. 
Peter, one of Jesus' first followers and one of Jesus' closest friends, writes some words that show us what morality looks like. They're words about someone from outside the world but stepped into the world. They're words about Jesus. Look at what he says from 1 Peter 2.22. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Peter picks up two things here. Number one, there is someone who lives a righteous life. There is one who acts rightly, an example of moral goodness. Someone who does not commit sin, who does not take God from his position of ruler of the world and, and, and try and step in it himself, but the one who treats him as God. Where no deceit is found in his mouth, where he did not revile, he, he, he didn't revile in return. He did not threaten. There is a picture here throughout history of moral perfection. It's not that we don't know what the right way to live is. Peter holds it out. Here, you seen Jesus? He lived as God wanted him to live. The moment when he was baptized in the rivers of the Jordan, he went down to be baptized. And what did the, what did the voice say from heaven? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. That is what it like, looks like to be human. To live in my world and my way. We can know what the right way to live is. We just need to come to Jesus and see him. And we see something else here as well that Peter highlights for us. That Jesus didn't feel the need to bring matters into his own hands because he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. In other words, he knew a judgment day was coming. He knew a day was coming when all action would be weighed by the God who made you and sustains you. He knew that everyone would have to give an account for the way that they've acted and that those who had rebelled and those who had hurt him and done all sorts of atrocities to him would be penalized for what they'd done. Their very lives would be taken. And Jesus would say, get away from me for I never knew you. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, it's not here, but he says, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It's the claim of the Bible. That every single person in this room will come before the true and living God. It's an absolute certainty. And he will ask you, how have you lived? What have you done? And there's no hiding. There's no running away. We will stand before him and he will see through us and into our hearts and minds and recognize how we have acted for our own right rather than what is actually right. How we have rejected the perfect picture of moral order in Jesus and decided to make up our own little world as our own little gods. We, he will see how we have been pretending to play God. Are you ready to face Judgment Day? Do you feel confident right now in yourself that if this is true, if there is an objective moral truth, if God is the one who made you and sustained you, do you feel confident right now 
that as you come before him, you'll be found not guilty? The Bible's claim is that judgment day is more certain than your next birthday. Judgment day is more certain than your next birthday. It will happen. Our actions will be held to account. But Peter doesn't stop here. He continues in verse 24 of chapter 2, talking of Jesus. But he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds, for you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Peter is like, do you see Jesus? Yes, he's the perfect model of moral rightness, but he's also the one that has come and died in your place and offered you forgiveness. When he was nailed to that cross and he faced death, he didn't only face human death, he faced the judgment of God for turning his back on God, but he'd never done that. It wasn't his turning his back on God that he was facing the judgment of God for. It was yours and mine. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven, that we could be set free. No longer having to worry about that judgment day in terms of whether we will be found guilty or not guilty. For if we trust in him, if we say, you are my king, you are my Lord, you are the one that's died for me, thank you, I want to live for you, then the benefits of his death, are applied to us, paid in full. You've been healed by his wounds, for you were like sheep going astray. But you've now returned, not to live a perfect life, but you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul, the one who's paid the price for you. Morality without God is not possible, for he is the true picture of morality. And we see that in the person in Jesus. Right living, right action. And we see the solution to our immorality in Jesus as well, where he's paid the price for you. My question is, have you run to Jesus? Have you put your life in his hands? Are you someone that tonight is confident that on judgment day when you come before God, you may stand forgiven because of his death and resurrection? There can be nothing more important than getting that right, surely. For that is the most important exam we'll ever face. It determines eternity. For many of us, we we have trusted in Jesus. We get that there is a God and we understand that there is a moral absolute. And we understand even that we, we don't live up to it. That's why we need Jesus' death in our place. But for so many of us who call ourselves Christian, we do nothing about it. We say, Jesus paid the price for me. He's died for me. He is the king and I'm so thankful for that. So now I'm just going to go and live however I want. Or maybe not however I want, but you know, I know there's things that I'm doing that aren't right. But you know, Jesus has forgiven me. It's cool. It's not a problem. We're relaxed about sin. And we just go around thinking, oh, it's not that bad. And anyway, I've got the insurance policy called Jesus. It's got it all sorted on judgment day. Hear these words of Peter. He himself bore our sins 
in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Is that you? Do you take this God who sustains your very breath seriously? Have you accepted that Jesus is the one who is the perfect picture of what it looks like to be human? That you need his forgiveness, but as well as that, you need to trust him and so live the right way. Not in order to be saved. We can't ever be good enough for God. We've already turned our backs on him. The the marks are already on us. We can never be perfect again. But we've been given a new life. And so run from living that old life. Run away from immorality. Why are so many Christians mucking around with things that are wrong, with sin? Tempting ourselves, looking at porn, mucking around in ways we shouldn't that are reserved for marriage. Um, Thinking, you know what, I'm just going to meddle in the world of career and, 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 and seeing pride in who I am and how others see me, rather than giving glory to God. Or thinking, you know, I I know God did set the rulers and authorities in place. And I know that, you know, downloading illegal movies uh, is is probably illegal. But, you know, everyone does it. It's not that bad. Live for righteousness. How dare those who have been forgiven by the creator of the universe shove it back in his face when he died for those very sins and say, oh, it's not that bad. Friends, we need to be very, very clear tonight. It matters how you live. As Christians, it matters how you live. As humans, it matters how you live. We will face God and we will be judged for our actions. If you've put your life in Jesus' hands, then run to Him. Trust Him. Take Him at His word. Don't flirt with sin. Ask him tonight to show you where you need to stop. Whether that be to come to him for the first time, to come back to him and say, I need to let you rule my life. Tonight, won't you come and recognize that this God has come in the flesh and his name is Jesus. That he is good and that he loves you. And he's shown that love at the cross. And that his way of living is right. And you are now free. You don't have to live perfectly anymore. But you're free to respond in the right way that is good for you and your neighbor and the rest of the globe. That should dramatically affect the way we live, shouldn't it? The way we care for refugees. The way we care for the unborn. The way we care about politics and the way that our society is saying we should live. Christians should not be silent on these things. It's not that we should legislate that it must be done this way, but if God has said this is right and we're convinced of that, we wouldn't argue and say this is important. We need to care about right living here and in places outside this country. We need to care about putting Jesus as our number one. We need to let him determine what is right and what isn't. And so live in a way that's free, yet serving him as our king. It's true. The one with the most power wins. His name is God and he's good. And he has made you with a deep desire to live his way. 
What is his way? Running to his son, putting your life in his arms and saying, let me live as you would have me for you are my king. That's how I want to respond. How will you respond today to this word from God? How you live matters. Let's pray. Lord God, tonight we are so thankful that you would show us how great you are. That we could see in your word that example of your son Jesus, that perfect model of right living, and at the same time the one who has died in our place and offers us freedom from the things we've committed. Father, we ask that tonight you would help us to run to your son, to trust him. That as we live in a world that is broken, to hold out the bright truth that you are God and that you are good and that your ways are good. Father, we pray that you would stop people's rebellion from you. We pray you'd stop our rebellion from you. That we might live for you. And that you might show us where we need to make you the ruler of our life rather than pretending to be little gods running around your world with no control. Father, tonight we ask that you would send us away from having heard you speak confident that if we trust in you, our future is secure and that we look forward to a day when things are put right. And evil is judged and dealt with and put away. And only because of your son that we get through that on his coattails. Father, we pray we might live with great joy. For you have shown us your son. You've shown us his goodness. And you've allowed us to call you our dad because of his death on the cross.